welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this is our second of two podcasts about the London Film Festival. We were both there for a few days this month and we saw a fairly wide range of movies. Last week we talked about the musical La La Land with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Um, also the drama Personal Shopper with Kristen Stewart and the drama Patterson with Adam Driver. And this week we're going to talk about a few more movies because we've got kind of a couple of headliners and then several smaller indie movies that we saw throughout the festival. So I think first of all we're going to be talking about Manchester by the Sea, which we have the consensus that this was by far the best film we saw at the festival. Yes. Just for a little background, this is, I'm not sure how long it was, it felt very long because there was a lot of emotional torment happening in my heart. But um, <laughs> it's a kind of a, it's a long very character focused drama about Casey Affleck playing a man whose brother dies and essentially leaves him his nephew. <laughs> He's like, you have to take care of my nephew now. And Casey Affleck's character is essentially so depressed that he's non-functional. Like he has a job working as a handyman in Boston and he has to go to this small town where he um, and his family grew up and where he has a lot of bad memories. And he has to kind of attempt to take care of this 16 year old boy. And every single character is like phenomenally well characterized, very well observed. The performances are all amazing. Like the guy who plays the teenage boy is just stunning. So Um, good. And it's, I mean, before we saw it, Morgan kind of described it to me as a movie about people being miserable in Massachusetts, which is exactly what it's about. And I was just like, okay, I'm going because I realized this is like a good film that I've not heard of. And it was like slightly under sufferance. And then I was just like, this is a masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like a kind of a maudlin, weepy film, right? Like it's not broad strokes tragedy. It's a film about people who are very miserable, but there was also quite a lot of humor in it, which I wasn't expecting. Like there were moments when people were laughing out loud in the audience, like all the way through the film. Um, And I would recommend seeing this in the cinema though, because it does come out on Amazon. And if you watch it by yourself, you're probably not going to be laughing. But if you have some companions, (laughs) it will be an entertaining, but also emotionally educational experience for you. Yes. Well, so this film was written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who did You Can Count On Me many years ago, which stars Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo, and then um, Margaret, which came out four years ago, but was shot in 2005, and was in post-production for one million years because he got into a fight with the studio. Um, and so Margaret is this really interesting, but very long and kind of messy movie with a huge number of characters. It takes place in New York City, Anna Paquin is the lead, and she kind of interacts with all of these people over the course of I think one day maybe it's a couple days I can't remember but it's it's a big ensemble and this film it's not like there are only three characters but it's very much um sort of focused around this one family and unlike that movie it is just absolutely pristinely controlled like every single line of dialogue every single scene is in this movie because there is a reason to for it to be there it is just like it made me as a writer like want to study it and become better like and I rarely feel that way not because I think like I'm the best writer ever but just like I appreciate good stuff but that's not really how my brain works and this one I was like this is a masterpiece like this is just the best thing I've seen in so long just unbelievable and what I think he does really really well is you can pick up so much about these people from the way they speak to each other and the way that they act without them ever explicitly talking about their feelings 
with a couple of exceptions. Like there are a couple of scenes where that does happen, but almost never. Um, which makes sense because people in real life don't do that that much. Like we don't really sit around having deep conversations about our feelings as people nearly as often as we should. And men, especially, and this is really a movie that's mostly about men. They, it's just not really how it goes down. Especially this is such like, a good movie about men. For me, it's like the kind of grown in a lab example of the ultimate film that's about men, but not by mistake. Because like obviously yeah. most movies are about men, but it's because the people who are making them haven't noticed that women are there. Whereas this is a film about a lot of men who have not been socialized to be open about their feelings. And like, there's some of them who have the emotional t intelligence to be able to like bond with each other. The teenage boy, he's very teenage boyish, but like he can have relationships and he knows how to share his feelings. And he and his male friends like share feelings in a kind of teenage boyish way that's very affectionate and funny and realistic. And then you've got, you know, the main character played by Casey Affleck who just like cannot function. And there's like a few scenes in the movie where you'll see there being like a female character who's there to facilitate a man, usually him, having emotion. And it's because he literally can't do it without that as a conduit, which was like yeah. very well illustrated in a subtle, but just brilliantly directed way. All of the choices they make with like even small characters interacting with each other is just great. Yeah. And um, I was not... So I think we both thought that the kid he was basically going to be in, like inheriting was much younger. And it turns out there was this teenager, and which is way more interesting than the kid being. Yeah, because like from the sort of summary of the film, it kind of seemed like, oh, he's adopting his nephew. We thought it was gonna be ten, but like, right. if it's a sixteen-year-old, he's an actor who like is twenty, but can plausibly play sixteen. But he's, you know, he's tall, he's mature, he can't drive yet, but like he has a social circle. But is also a child. Yeah, and so exactly. It's this great. Like there are certain things, like he has a sort of consciousness and a will of his own at that point like he wants to do things he doesn't want to do things he doesn't want to be controlled by this guy who he has spent very little time with as a sort of adolescent but you also see very clearly that there is stuff about the adult world and like the emotional experiences of adults that he doesn't get he's still too self-absorbed to be able to psychoanalyze stuff that is fairly obvious that is wrong with his uncle and like why yeah. his uncle isn't able to cope with adopting a kid and this sort of thing but he can't work it out because he just doesn't have the adult wherewithal to put those things together and work out the answer which is makes sense because again he's 16 and his yeah. father has just died and his mother is not around but it's not presented in this sort of like melodramatic weepy way it's just like it's just there and the movie kind of goes along with what it's doing and I think the reason why it's so emotionally affecting is precisely because, as I was sort of describing, there aren't really, with really one exception, these scenes where people confront each other in this way and really, ha like, cry and all of this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's all not something where the there's, surface. like, an obvious story structure where you can see where things are going to go. Like, it's not a predictable here's a solution to the problem you have because they've got so such like a complex web of everyone's personal issues and the circumstances around the death of this guy that you can't just put it all together and be like oh here's how this is going to end up yeah i had no idea which was really thrilling 
Like, and I would have watched this movie for like five hours. Like, I was just so fascinated by all of these people, and it. Oh yeah, I mean, I like... say it, I say it felt long, but I don't mean in the sense that I was bored, right? Like, I was loving every second of this film. Yeah, and it felt like it ended at the right place. Oh, absolutely. for sure. But it, I, I was just so absorbed with them because I think they felt so much like real people, and not like characters. I mean, yeah. obviously they were, but they felt so fully realized and so complex that it felt like you were just watching people. And so then you want to find out more about what's going on. So there were, flat, there were flashbacks throughout the film to the sort of life before the, the brother has died. Oh, and um, we should say that Michelle Williams is in this film as well. She plays yeah. um, Casey Affleck's ex-wife. Ex-wife. And then um, Kyle Chandler plays uh, the, his brother, who is He's dead. dead. Um, and he, he doesn't have any sort of big scenes because that's not really what this movie does but even from these little moments you get such a clear feeling for what he was like and who he was and again i could have watched that for five hours but the amount yeah, that it's just you, like you, kyle chandler just being like a nice dad right <laughs> Well, like, Although, like, when there's version. the scene where you find out that Casey Affleck's brother is dead, I was genuinely like, are they gonna have Ben Affleck? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was just God, like, it's no. gonna be Ben! Who <laughs> would have been, like, the most inappropriate person to be in this film, because everyone looks like a regular human. You can't have Ben Affleck sort of molded Right. Oh my God, <laughs> Kyle Chandler is doing the, like, Massachusetts version of Coach Taylor. Um, but what they give you is exactly the amount that you need for the story to work. Even if I wanted it to go on for longer, you don't need any more than is there. And for me, like I grew up outside of Boston. And so this place takes place in the North shore, which is not where I'm from, but it's close enough that I, I know what Massachusetts is like. I've spent a lot of time on the Cape, which again is not the same, but it's on the water. And, um, and, it was the most accurate depiction of Massachusetts that I've ever seen in a movie, bar none, no question. Like, absolutely. And Kenneth Lonergan is from Manhattan, went to college in Connecticut, and, like, I, like from his Wikipedia, which I realize is not at all comprehensive or possibly accurate, like, there's nothing about Massachusetts on there. So I, I feel like he must have lived there at some point, because otherwise this is insane to me. I assume watching it that he had grown up there. Because it's so right. But it would almost, like, it would just be so incredible to me if he had not, because it is this incredibly sort of specific depiction of this place. But I think that that really lends itself to, and the, as you said, the situation that they find themselves in is really complicated and not something that, like, it's not a situation that almost anyone will have experienced exactly, but I think the fact that it is so nuanced and also that the setting is so specific adds to its universality in a way. I can't watch this movie and be like, oh yeah, I totally know what it feels like to blah blah blah, but that makes the emotion so much more potent because... Yeah, I mean, I know absolutely like, nothing about living in Massachusetts, like, but, like, I could tell as an outsider that it was incredibly specific. And I'm also very curious about the writer-director because after watching it, 
we were talking about how great the teenage boy was and Morgan was like he must be some local teenage boy they cast because he's got the accent like you see he looks like fairly regular as well like he doesn't look like a kind of a teen star and we looked him up and he's been in like eight movies and he's from Brooklyn (laughs) I was like what the fuck but like they were all they were all like serious indies and like his parents are both poets so he's got you know he's clearly got the kind of serious creative background but man he was good and all the teenagers were good I don't know the background of the other teenage actors, but I would love them all having to force their, you know, teenage friends to watch this movie. Because, like, yeah, I'm in a movie about, like, a guy dealing with the death of his brother. (laughs) Just misery the whole way through. Yeah. Excellent. Although it is, like, we're sitting here talking about how miserable this movie is, and it truly will, like, destroy you emotionally. Yeah, I mean, Casey Affleck's performance is something I don't think I've seen on film before. But it's, like, someone who's so depressed they can't, like, properly articulate words out of their mouth. I, I. It was astonishing. It was unbelievable. Like the little it, sort of gestures that he makes and the little yeah. facial expressions were so sort of minute and specific. Yeah. It was unreal. And it I, wasn't even. It wasn't even like it was one of those sort of Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain things where it's someone who's really immobile. He's not like oh, there's a tiny micro expression. Like he's extremely expressive, and also you see him in flashbacks to like when he was less miserable. So yeah. it's like a very varied performance. Yeah, he was absolutely amazing. They're all really good, everyone in the cast, but he was just, I mean... And as you said, it's a specific sort of type of depression that I don't think I've really ever seen in a movie. I mean, I can't think of one. I'm sure someone has done it, but it's certainly not something that is seen commonly. I feel like there are certain modes of depression or mental illness that get recreated on film sort of over and over again because they're easy to comprehend and that this certain sort of type of depression or like sort of extremely cliche stupid bipolar disorder right that like has no bearing on the reality of what that's like to experience but this actually felt i mean i fortunately have never experienced this level of depression at all but it felt way more real to me than almost anything i've seen in anything before it was just unbelievable so yeah, I mean, I can't recommend this highly enough, even though it will yeah. make I you cry. I think it's safe to say that we think um, we should watch this film. <laughs> like, please go to it. And even though it's, like, will crush you, it is actually quite funny. Like, we, yeah. we really laughed a lot amidst the just misery. Um, but, like, I'm still thinking about it. I really, it was funny, we came out and you were like, I never want to see that movie again. And I mean, it was like, I must see this again. Like, really illustrates a lot but i really do want to see it again because when you go to a festival it i really love film festivals because you get to see a ton at once and that gives you a sense of like what is happening in the world of cinema which is really interesting so even if you see stuff you don't like it gives you a sort of broad picture of stuff that's going on and that's really exciting but that also means that you are just cramming your brain full of stuff and we didn't see so many things that, like, I remember all of them, which sometimes is not always the case. But for a movie like this, I feel like it deserves, like, my full attention and not being one of eight films I saw over the course of three days. So I'm going to go see it again. I mean, I feel uh, like this is a film that you could study as a director, an actor, a playwright or a screenwriter and all of the different ways in which it observes human behavior would be educational to like just watch minute by minute and take notes on, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's not something yeah. I ordinarily think about at all because I'm not 
like I'm not naturally like an observing kind of person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not a novelist. <laughs> yeah, it's just brilliant. Best movie I saw this year. I've seen this year so far easily better than almost anything I saw this year. This has been a good year for film already, like easily better than last year, I think. I mean, uh, I was very glad I went to London Film Festival because, I mean, as we're about to discuss, like we watched a lot of kind of interesting and good films, but like they were films that were not readily available yet. Obviously partly because it's Oscar season, but also partly because in terms of my job and personal interests, I tend to watch a lot of movies about punching and yelling <laughs> and people wearing spandex, which is certainly my zone. But this year's offering has not been promising, and there's also been quite a lot of disappointments. And we're about to move on to different topics now. But aside from this, we watched a lot of movies about women and by women filmmakers. I think the majority of the movies I watched over the weekend were directed by women and or starred a cast of majority women. Yeah, I think you saw more than I did, but I also saw... A few, which is well. I was I was there for four days. I saw at least two films per day because I yeah yeah. But why don't we move on to certain women, uh, which is the other kind of you you cannot call this a big movie. It is such a small movie, but it's starring quite a few very well known people, um, and was directed by Kelly Reichardt, who is one of the tiniest, most indie directors in the United States, but has made a number of films that people might have heard of. Wendy and Lucy is probably the most famous one, which was made for around $5, starring Michelle Williams, and I think has a sort of acquired status since it came out. Um, The only film of hers I have seen, I really need to see Wendy and Lucy, I have seen Meek's Cutoff, which also stars Michelle Williams, who I think has been in maybe all of her films except one. Meek's Cutoff takes place in Western Frontier, like people traveling in covered wagons, etc. And it is so slow i almost couldn't handle it like i i was dying the climactic scene is really incredible but it was so slow that i almost lost my mind and i watch art films all the time and i just i was dying so i was curious to see this because i have only seen that one film of hers which i really should rectify um and this film is based on some short stories by male malloy or male malloy who has won a bunch of awards and has published a ton of stuff and she took three short stories from a recent book of hers and basically did almost like three short films and stitched them together although they are connected in yeah. i mean they're very loosely connected but it's basically yeah. It's three kind of TV episode length yeah. stories starring Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern. Although I think it would be something of a lie to say that the Kristen Stewart one starred her because she's more like the secondary character. Yeah. And they all take place in Montana. This also, like Manchester by the Sea, is clearly a very, very specific depiction of that sort of environment. And what I liked about this or one of the things I liked about this, I really liked this film, was that they sort of covered a range of sort of class and geographic locations around a certain part of the state. So you had one of the little stories that took place in Littleton, which is a city, and then you sort of went outside the city for people to people for whom Littleton was like, like wow imagine little sprite like that it was like four hours away and so there was a sense of roving around and getting a full picture of what life is like there um and for me it was really interesting to watch as someone who's just moved out of the country like this is an area of 
the U.S. where I've never been, and so certain things about it were totally alien to me, and then other things I felt like I really immediately recognized as like, oh yeah, that's like America, <laughs> right? And so it evoked a lot of that. But it was really neat to watch all these stories about women. They felt very much like short stories. Yeah, like you could tell that was the. Story and it was also I really enjoyed the tone, which I guess I would describe as light drama, right? Because yeah. it's in my experience anyway, relatively rare to find a light drama film about women that isn't dumb, right? Yes. Because <laughs> it's an intelligent, well-observed, interesting trio of stories with really good lead actors. And it's not kind of silly, which, yeah, that sounds kind of sexist, but I think it's more like it's kind of a function of Hollywood sexism, right? Where it's yeah. like not taking a smaller story seriously and or only allowing that type of story to be told if it's like a serious drama tearful Oscar vehicle and these were like small stories but they were treated with seriousness and humor at the same time the first one is Laura Dern is a small town lawyer who has issues with one of her clients who basically won't let go of a case and it was quite funny like it was a humorous story about a relatively serious situation and then the next one is about Michelle Williams is this wealthy woman who with her husband and teenage daughter she wants to build a house in Montana from scratch and it's all about her like quest to find the right kind of reclaimed stone yeah. um, and like her daughter is just hilarious this 13 year old who just like doesn't give a shit because why would you your parents want to build a house in Montana of reclaimed stones why would anyone care she's not like an especially likable character but she's extremely sympathetic because she is clearly like a good mom and you know she's very professional and has this goal and is trying to execute that goal and her teenage daughter is just being like a sulky teenager and her husband is just being like really unhelpful while thinking of himself as being helpful and he's cheating Which, on her also. yeah and he's cheating on so her yeah. he's great. yeah he's cheating yeah. on her kind of amusing useless husband who isn't hateful but i'm just like just divorce him and don't build the fucking house yeah. um and then the third one is i think probably both of our favorites even though like all three of them were really good the I third like the one Michelle was the one. Williams one that okay, okay. The well, I like the was... third one. It yeah. was about a young stable hand who goes to like an evening class that's taught by young trainee lawyer Kristen Stewart and just becomes obsessed with her and just gets this completely baseless crush based on like not speaking to her at all. And like they go to like a diner together and she just like stares at Kristen Stewart. And I'm like, could anything <laughs> be better than a film that's about a hopeless, rather clueless young queer girl being obsessively in love with Kristen Stewart, just like <laughs> not knowing her? No casting has ever been better than that. <laughs> it was so funny. It's like the opposite. Uh, I was just of what you would expect. We're just and laughing like all the way through. I felt like a lot of the audience were like not getting into that. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> well, it was so funny and also just. Like, excruciating. Oh. Like, it was absolutely excruciating. Yeah. It was so bad. And, like, this. And it was all down girl. to, like, the performance of the main girl rather than Kristen Stewart. Um, it's an yeah. actress named Lily Gladstone. And um, I don't know how old she is, but I'm guessing, like, late teens, early 20s. Yeah. Um, and it was. I, it was really subtly handled because there is. Like, she is getting no signs of encouragement whatsoever. Like, I mean, Chris Stewart's nice to her, but it's yeah. not like there are any subtle signals, but she just wants it so badly to be true. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, oh, it was just painful. It was painful. Um, but I thought what was, what I really liked about it was that it was, there was a lot of humor, 
I mean, the, the film as a whole, while simultaneously having these sort of sad or poignant moments, which I think is very much like a lot of short story writing. So that made sense. So I think why I like the Michelle Williams one so much is that they go like, they're, they're not like coming from California or something. It was unclear what exactly the situation was, but the, I mean, it seemed like they were probably coming from somewhere else in Montana. Yeah. um, But like clearly have money and, you know, and they are going to this guy's house whom they know somehow. I also wasn't totally clear on that, but it doesn't seem like he's a relative. Um, to... Played by Rene Auberginois. Yeah. Always great to see a Star Trek actor doing well. Um, and... <laughs> Although obviously he is beyond that. But <laughs> They want to get this stone that he's got like on his lawn that he was once going to use for his own building project. And he's now quite old, so it's clearly not going to happen. And they have to go in and ask him for it, which is very awkward. And he is just amazing. He's this guy was so good. And you get this, like, you totally understand their awkwardness, but also you get that, like, they really want the stone. And he's sort of not engaging with them fully. And it was really sad. Like, I, he just, he made me feel really sad while there, while also you sort of got the, like, discomfort and sometimes humor of that discomfort. And I thought that all of those emotions balanced really, really well. Um, and that the tone of it, which was just so kind of, like, calm and quite slow, worked with that. I the length. Like, I, it really made yeah. me want to see more films of that length, right? Yeah. Which I know, I think HBO does some kind of half hour, 45 minute short films and that sort of thing. Yeah. But like, I would like to see the old fashioned A movie, B movie arrangement where you yeah. have like a little film and a big film or more films where you're allowed to tell multiple stories like this. But obviously this is a movie that costs $2 million and very few people are going to watch despite it having Laura Dern in it. So yep. she has creative freedom and I respect that. Yes. But uh, yeah, we would both recommend this. I'm not sure when it's coming out at some point. It will come out to three cities and then be on your computer. So watch it sometime. <laughs> um, but we both we both really like that. And now I think we're going to run through the other movies that we saw in brief. Yeah. Um, so I think there, there's like a couple of movies that I saw by myself that I'd like to talk about. And there's also yeah. one that we saw together. Yeah. Um, the first I'm going to just get out of the way very quickly, which is a film called A Quiet Passion, which is a biopic of Emily Dickinson, which... I went to because there was like there was a time slot when there was a selection of films where I wasn't really sure about any of them. I should have watched literally any of the other films. <laughs> um, I don't really know anything about Emily Dickinson. Like she wasn't a poet that um, I studied in school, which is like where most people are exposed to Emily Dickinson, I think. And while generally I would be interested in watching a film about a famous female literary figure, this movie was actually agony. Like within the first five <laughs> minutes, I was, I kind of wanted to leave the theater, but I was like, you can't do that. Like you're here, you have like a journalistic responsibility to watch the whole film. So it stars Cynthia Nixon, who you will all know from Sex in the City as Emily Dickinson. And a kind of for a brief period at the beginning, Emily Dickinson is played by a younger actress kind of when she's still in her like college for girls um, for about five minutes. And then she very rapidly ages into Cynthia Nixon, which was the first rather small nitpick I had with this film, which is that you have Cynthia Nixon playing Emily Dickinson for most of her life. There's a scene where like a middle-aged pastor is referring to Cynthia Nixon as young lady. And I'm like, Cynthia Nixon is 50 and looks 50. And there is absolutely no change in her styling. There's no kind of old age makeup or anything throughout. Like towards the end when she's ill and sick, she wears comfortable, I'm an ill person clothes. But like, there's no kind of 
way to tell how old she's meant to be throughout the film. That is not my main criticism. That's just no. My main <laughs> criticism is that it was so boring. Like, so I'm sure that stuff happened in Emily Dickinson's life. And even if it didn't, there's ways to execute that, right? So I think the concept was meant to be Emily Dickinson had an extremely quiet life where she spent her entire life with her family. Yeah, like, she basically because, didn't leave the house. Yeah, she basically yeah. didn't leave the house. She was kind of a shut-in. She was closed off partly by the fact that she like didn't want to get married and partly because life for women then was extremely conservative and you had to have quite a rebellious spirit to go out and do stuff on your own, right? I think you can make a really interesting claustrophobic drama film about someone in a house not interacting with people, right? You can definitely make a great film about that. Um, this was not that. Every character was speaking in this like weird, mannered tone that was kind of like, oh, I've got a wry witticism, and then they'd say it, and then they'd be like, oh, a wry witticism, and it like <laughs> wouldn't be funny. There were people who were cr- laughing in the audience, and the dialogue was so bad that I was actually annoyed with people who found it amusing. <laughs> the acting was fine, I guess right but it was just so dull and towards the end like about two-thirds of the way through when she started to get terminally ill i was just like please just die (laughs) and she took so long to die and i honestly i can't imagine what the audience for this film is right if you're like a big if you're yeah the function of a biopic right is either you learn about a figure that you don't know anything about you learn new emotional insight into a popular historical figure or it's like an interesting work of art as a film right and like this was none of those three things <laughs> so <laughs> steer clear of that this is the most negative review we will be sharing from the film <laughs> festival do not watch a quiet passion i'm happy to see cynthia nixon getting roles and also it co-starred jennifer eel who starred in the 1990s pride and prejudice and even my affection for her could not outweigh the fact that this was like the most boring film i've seen all year so I'm going to move rapidly on to another film called Wolf and Sheep that Morgan and I saw together and I think we both enjoyed. Yes, yeah, so this is the first film directed by an Afghan woman. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Um, yeah, well, that's how they're kind of advertising it. Yeah. saying it's the first film by, it's the first feature film by a woman from Afghanistan. But yeah. I was kind of mentioned on Twitter and people were like, it's kind of not the first woman, but they're yeah, totally I was trying skeptical to mark about like this. But regardless, um, it's an impressive accomplishment. She's like yes. our age, which made me yeah. want to vomit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's 26, and she was given like a can scholarship at 20, and it's clear why because she's very talented. <laughs> yeah, I think you like this more than I did. I found it prom. I found it. It felt like a film school exercise to me. I found it very promising, largely about like children in this very small town in Afghanistan, and it's not structured. It's no. kind of. There's it's no it's not a documentary, but it's clear that like everyone in it is a real person and it's yeah. based on the day-to-day lives of people in this village. So it's children herding sheep every day and the ways that they play and interact with each other and then the kind of the adults' lives. So it shows you basically what happens in their lives, which was really interesting in like a non-preachy, non-documentary kind of way. And it's intersected with sort of a very small amount of magic realism, which I feel like it didn't kind of go anywhere enough right because there's this sort of thread of this werewolf kind of story but it only took up about five minutes of the film collectively so i feel like there should have been either more of that or they should have removed it it was interesting to watch all of the actors in it were great i don't know to what extent how many of them were professional actors if any i'm guessing probably none i'm guessing Um, zero Um, but like it was very naturalistic and even though it didn't have a structure I enjoyed watching all the way through. Yeah, I found the kids really charming, and I found some of the sort of, like, anthropological or, like, sociological stuff quite interesting, and I thought she certainly seemed talented from as a director, but I couldn't quite get past 
the fact that there just was no story at all. There really was no narrative, with the exception of like a couple quite minor things. And then some of the stuff that was clearly set up to be part of the narrative was really not explained at all. Like there would be something that would happen right at the beginning of the film that would have an impact later on, but it was not made clear enough, like who the characters were, or how they related to each other until so late that I was like, oh, that's why that's right. happening. Like, okay. I, I wasn't really considering um, that because I don't feel like, like within about 10 seconds, it wasn't a film where I was expecting there to be a kind of recognizable, familiar story structure. Well, so I it think... felt like it was misadvertised as here's a drama about a collection of characters. It was more like a camera has gone into the lives of these people. Well, but there's a difference between like a classic Hollywood narrative structure with like rising action, falling action and broken into three acts and a structure of any kind, which this didn't have, which is why it felt like a film school thing to me. I strongly suspect this woman will make really good films. Because oh yeah, she's I mean, for talented, sure, I am definitely going to be checking out her future work. This one didn't feel to me like there was a lot going on. If you're someone who's interested in films from that part of the world or like upcoming female filmmakers, I would say check it out, but I wouldn't strongly recommend it. I saw a great movie from, I think it was made in Afghanistan from a few years ago called The Patient Stone starring Goshta Farhani that I strongly recommend if you're interested in Afghan film, although it was directed by, I think, an Iranian filmmaker who now lives in France. But yeah, it was interesting. Uh, the one I saw that you did not see was called Una, um, which was an adaptation of the play Blackbird, which I actually saw on Broadway in the spring, which is about a young woman sort of finding and confronting the man who sexually abused her when she was a young teenager. Like They had been in a consensual relationship, but she was like 13, so you know um and the play is really intense and really powerful and it takes place it's just two people in the play and it takes place in one room and it's like an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half long and it's totally exhausting and it makes you feel sick and it's just ugh. i mean it's great but i came out of that play thinking to myself that was really good and i never want to see it again like <laughs> and so of course found myself watching this film like three months later and i would not recommend this film to anyone it did not do a good job at adapting the material i always think that adapting plays is really interesting proposition because obviously theater is really complex medium in the sense that so few people actually have the chance to go see plays especially plays that are put on by you know like broadway level um theater companies but it is really hard to do them on film. There's a reason why it doesn't happen that often. It's because it usually doesn't work. And if you are interested in this play, I would recommend just reading the reading it. I'm sure you can find it. Find it. I'm sure they sell it. It's, again, called Blackbird. They had to sort of expand it out of the room, so they added all this stuff. The guy who wrote it, whose name I can't remember, actually did the adaptation himself, and it didn't work at all. And... In the film, they have Rooney Mara and Ben Mendelsohn. The one production I saw was Michelle Williams and Jeff Daniels, who has actually done the play twice. And I thought both of them did a better job than Rooney Mara and Ben Mendelsohn. And the casting that was the weirdest was Ben Mendelsohn, who always plays creeps. So I was like, you can't cast a creep! And Literally like, the new Star Wars villain. <laughs> right, and like the role is supposed to be... You're not supposed to sympathize with him exactly, but you're supposed to see him as like a full person to sort of try to understand 
what his perspective is, which is part of why the play is so upsetting. And so Jeff Daniels is really great in that role because it's not like you look at Jeff Daniels and you're like, oh, love that guy. I mean, I do like Jeff Daniels a lot, actually, but he has a certain kind of charisma and he's really, really hyperverbal. And a lot of what that character is doing is justifying what he did to himself. And he, so he explains this in the play. And Ben Mendelsohn is just creepy. I mean, I know nothing about Ben Mendelsohn in person. Like, I don't want to malign him, but I look at him on a film and my expectation is he's going to be playing someone who's done something bad. And in this film, he has. So the whole thing was just like, oh, I was just found it boring, actually, because I knew it was going to happen and it wasn't engaging to me at all. And the other thing, I don't want to talk about this too much because I, I just don't think anyone should see it. But the other thing that they did that really, really didn't work was that they had flashbacks to when it was all happening and she was 13. And the play obviously doesn't do that. And it's sort of by making it literal and actually forcing you to watch it, I mean, not they're showing any of the stuff actually happening, but they're showing her at that age. It sort of totally makes the whole thing dead because you're you're just seeing it instead of imagining it. And it's also a bit cheap because anyone seeing that who's a normal person is going to feel really gross. And the, and the movie doesn't have to earn it, right? Because they don't have to try. They just have to show you this man and this girl and you're immediately going to want to throw up. And so then the movie is just like, well, okay. So, um, yeah, I found it very frustrating. Don't go see it. The play is great if you want to feel horrible reading for 45 minutes. Like, I would recommend that. But I don't know who on earth the audience for this movie is going to be. Like, who goes to see movies about pedophilia? I mean, I it has to be, like, a like, world-class good movie, you know? Right. Because I feel like people went to see uh, The Huntsman. Yes. But that was because people were like, this is the best film of the year. Right. Yeah, this one, not so much. Um, so I kind of watched several other films without Morgan, but I've reviewed them for The Daily Dot. Um, I watched three foreign language horror movies, each of which was like really interesting in its own way. But the one I'd really recommend is a Lao film called Dearest Sister, which is about a young woman who moves in with her cousin who married a rich white Estonian guy. And it's this really tense psychological horror that also has a supernatural element. So the idea is that the cousin is blind and gets these visions of ghosts. But also, like, most of the tension is kind of about the way the cultural clashes between the people within the household. So there's this sort of unbalanced relationship between the cousin and her husband because he has clearly just married a local girl but doesn't really appreciate her as a person. It's, there's just this racist subtext with white guys who go and then marry local girls and don't appreciate them. And then the main character is extremely naive, so she doesn't understand about, like, there's a power imbalance between her being a member of the family and then the servants who already work in the household. It's just this really great thriller with, like, a supernatural kind of thing going on at the same time. So if you have a chance to watch this Lao horror movie, which I imagine will not be on general release, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the horror movie reviews I did, so you can read up on that. But I think that's kind of all we have right now for our film festival reviews. You can check out last week's episode if you haven't seen it, and you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, Twitter at overinvestedpod, and Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Goodbye. <laughs>